0: This is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace,
1: Amen. Thank you, Laura. Okay, so week two, the book of Ephesians. Uh, so you may be thinking, ooh, I'm, I'm involved in the beginnings of a church plant. That sounds kind of uh, super Christian. I don't know if I've quite, you know, got, got what it takes to do something like that. Well, I've got good news for you. Um, The New Testament is a book filled with letters written to church plants. And you look at what Paul is dealing with in those letters, and Peter and John and the other authors of of the New Testament, and they're all pretty screwed up (laughs) as churches. Um, 1 Corinthians is probably like the shining example of one messed up, Church, and so be encouraged. That's kind of the the mystery and the awe of this whole thing is that God would choose to to bring together such ordinary and flawed individuals to show forth His glory to the world. Now. Most, I say most of the letters of the New Testament are dealing with specific issues in these churches. Um, In other words, they have an occasion for which they were written. The book of Ephesians is different. There doesn't seem to be any occasion that Paul is dealing with. He's just writing a letter because he doesn't mention anything particular about the church at Ephesus. And so for that reason, some people have said, well, the letter must be... Paul had, it was, it was first to go to Ephesians, and then the, the intent was for it to circulate through the other churches. Um, but, but what it means that Paul doesn't seem to be dealing with a particular issue at Ephesus is that he's got kind of free reign, and he can really explore something in depth, and it's exactly what he does. And his topic, his subject for this letter is the book, or I'm sorry, is the topic of the church. And so that's what we're looking at. Now, last week we just barely scratched the surface of it. Um, but before we jump in, let me make a, a f- another few announcements. There's a couple of books that I've been reading as of late as I'm kind of preparing for these studies, and I just wanted to let you know what it is so you can, if you're interested, you can check them out. This is kind of a classic commentary on the book of Ephesians by John Stott. It was written in like the 1970s. Uh, but it's very readable, accessible, and it's excellent. The, the subtitle is um, God's New Society. And that's what Paul is, is putting forth in a book of Ephesians, a completely new way of living life in the world. So there's that. Go ahead and mark it on your Amazon wish list. Second book by Eugene Peterson called Practice Resurrection, you actually introduced me to this book back in the summer. And it was perfect because the whole book's on the, the book of Ephesians. And Eugene Peterson is great. I think, I think he's outstanding. And what, what better thing to read right now than a book by him about the book of Ephesians. So those are some of the things that are kind of informing uh, my preparation and all of this. But let's, let's do a quick review. Last week we focused on the, the real takeaway from last week was Paul's um, greeting of grace and peace. Grace then peace, right? I mentioned the order being very important because there's two ways to get along in life. One is a peace then grace approach, which as you may recall, the idea is if we can just get peace with God, so first peace, if I can get peace with God through a stellar moral record, then, and only then, can I unlock God's uh, riches, the little padlock, can I unlock God's riches, or another way to say it is His grace, His favor towards me. Then He will pour forth His blessings upon me, because I have achieved peace with God through a stellar moral record. And when most people, like on the street, think about church, they think that this is what we're doing. But I, I would say that every other religion is doing this. But good old, crunchy, orthodox Christianity is not doing that. It's grace and then peace, right? So let me let me illustrate. God has initiated, there is this gap between us and God. Like we, we feel it, um, even if we don't believe in God, we feel as though we're somehow alienated from we're just living out of step with the universe you know but we feel like there's this discord between us and the, the rest of the world or the god the gods and god and for all of human history humans have been trying to deal with this gap well christianity says that what god has done to deal with it it's real it's true there is a there is a chasm between us and god and god has poured forth his grace upon us in christ and That's step one, grace, right? And then, as a result of his pouring out of this grace, we have peace with God. So grace, then peace. See the difference? It's a huge difference. Enormous difference. And not only peace with God, as Paul is going to claim later in the letter, peace with, with others, with the church. Here's, you can just imagine little, other little stick figures out here. Um, peace with others, peace across Jew-Gentile, racial barriers, cultural barriers, economic barriers. Um, the church is a unified body because of the grace that God has initiated. So, grace, then peace. That summarizes the whole book of Ephesians. Chapter 1 through 3, Paul's really emphasizing the grace of God being poured out. And then in chapter 4, he begins to explain how that grace creates a peace within a a church. Within marital relations, within parent-child relations, within work relations. I mean, he goes to to every facet of life. So, the reason I presented that whole thing again is because I want this to be etched in your minds as we move forward. Because we're going to kind of hark back to it. But we're not, we're now in verse 3. And Paul is moving. I don't know if you got dizzy listening to Laura read it. It's packed. It's dense, what's being described. It took, I mean, it's, it's dizzying to read. Which is why we're going to pray before we get in. Let me pray for us, actually. Father, we give you thanks that you have uh, communicated yourself to us, and, and what we've learned as a result of your revelation to us is that you are um, you're extending love, you're extending your grace, you're making a new uh, humanity, a new people um, in Christ to be recipients of all of your your favor and your goodness and your grace help us to understand what paul communicated to this church at ephesus 2000 years ago we ask for your spirit to again be present and illuminate and speak somehow through through me and um, into the hearts and minds of those that are here we ask these things in christ's name amen okay so the passage is dense it's packed it moves very quickly One commentator says, he says, he likens Paul to an eagle before he flies. Listen to what he says. Paul is like an eagle in the preliminary stages of flight, kind of rising and wheeling around as though for a little while, uncertain what direction in his boundless freedom he shall take. And that's how this passage reads. Now, for the last really 400 years, you might say, we have been incrementally and um, progressively flattening our world and our existence and kind of slowly pushing God and the supernatural out of public life. Okay? Um, and we, we've gotten them out of um, public discourse. Um, the institutions that surround it, like the, the, the university and commerce and public life, right? We, and, and, and it should be pointed out, this is really strange. In the, in the span of human history, God or the gods have been front and center in public life until you get to about the last 200 years. And as a result of that, uh, removing God, we've, we've flattened our world. We live in a world without windows, is one way to think about it. There's no, there, all that is, is what you see, what is material, what is um, natural. Now, there's clues that we're, we're discontent with that. In, like, popular culture, I think of sh- movies like Star Wars and, Shows like Lost and Stranger Things that point to the possibility of another world, of a window where there is a supernatural, paranormal, inexplicable activity. Okay, But for the most part, we live in a world that's flat, a world without windows. And I would, I would also say this, our screens that, all, that are all around us, um, have only accelerated the flattening of our existence um, we believe that a little six inch glowing screen holds the hope um, of a better way a better life right that we can we can if we can invest in relationships there we can we can enjoy less messy friendships that we can easily turn off if they get too messy we can enjoy like a more manicured and carefully curated self in that screen, um, enjoy the, the, the quick delivery of the products we love, um, all sorts of things. But here's the thing. As we've flattened our, our world and as we've lived more of our lives like in these screens, we've become miserable. Miserable. Since 1999, suicide has spiked in America by 30%. That's incredible in the last 20 years. That, kind of, that percentage increase in the, in the number of suicides were miserable. There's a lady named Jean Twenge, a psychologist, and she has written, she's done a lot of study of teenagers, and she noticed that in about 2012, teenagers grew incredibly more depressed. and They were safer than they'd ever been they were less likely to have sex before, uh, you know, in, with their peers. They were less likely to, to kill each other. Teenage homicide went down. All of these good things were happening, but they were miserable. And teenage suicide was on the rise. Because, and, and so she was trying to figure out why was this sharp increase. And one of the things that happened during that same time is that more than 50% of the U.S. population began having a smartphone. Um, and so more and more of these kids began sort of living a lot of their lives on these devices and it was, it was making them miserable. Now I'm not like, I'm not diss. I have a smartphone right there and I'm not, you know, I'm not totally dissing the the tool. It's a good thing, but it's, it doesn't take long before we become the tools, right? Before we, 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 we become used by it and it begins to shape us. And I think it contributes to this world where our horizons are so small. We've we've, we've, uh, shrunk our horizons. And what Paul is doing in this passage is he's opening things up to us. He's sort of peeling back the curtain and showing us what God has been up to since before the foundation of the earth. That God has these incredible plans for us. And I should say, Paul's going to tell us that our lives both begin and end with God. Okay? The way of the world, everything I just described about the flattening of our earth, uh, of our world and our existence and the scope of our purpose and all of that, really what's been happening is we've, we've turned in on ourselves to where we are the, the source of our being we humans, and we are the end of our, of our existence. Like You live for yourself, and that's the bottom line. And beyond that, you know, kind of treat it as nice as long as they don't get in the way of your happiness and pursuit and all of that. Okay, I mentioned that John Stott, his commentary is called God's New Society. Paul is saying the church, God's New Society, operates according to a different, Source, God, and telos, or purpose, God, the glory of God. We're going to see all that in this passage here. So, let's jump in. And after we kind of work our way through the passage, we're going to break up into those groups again, similar groups. If you weren't here last week, we'll plug you in, and we'll we'll have some questions as well. Okay, verse 3. What does Paul say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. Now, he goes on. That's his first kind of premise. Blessed be God. And then what he does in the remaining verses is he unpacks why God is to be blessed. And look at it. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All the glory and beauty that exists in heaven has been given to us. By the Spirit. It's ours in Christ. And notice there's, like a, there's a Trinitarian shape to this first verse. Paul mentions, blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ that all of these spiritual blessings come. And you could actually translate blessings from the Holy Spirit would be maybe even a better translation of that. So you got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit Right there in that first verse, that, that all of these blessings and gifts find their source in God the Father, they find their availability in Christ, and they find their application in the Spirit. The Spirit is the means by which we receive these things. And, and here's one thing to notice There's, we're only looking at 12 verses today. You know how many times Jesus shows up in these 12 verses as reference? 15 times. Okay, I want you to see the centrality of Christ to these to the, all of these benefits of the gospel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so verse three, uh, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Right. That. We spoke last week of God being the Trinity and that in, in God there's, there is love and there is delight and there is joy. It's a, it's a happy land, the Trinity is. You can imagine it like a cascade of love. And so as God is delighting in himself and in his glory, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, God the Father has a plan before he makes anything. And he says to himself, I want to make a people upon whom I can lavish my blessings upon for all eternity. In other words, this, this plan, this thing of which we are part, was not a made on a whim, right? But before the foundation of the earth, this was the plan. King's Cross Church somehow was in God's mind, From before the foundation of the earth, which is which is incredible, and that plan was to make you us, (coughs) excuse me, holy and blameless before the Father. Now I know that we um, we struggle with sin. We struggle with our own frailty as humans, and sometimes it, it it feels or it seems as though we're in a losing battle, but. But we're not. I mean, this has been the plan of Almighty God since before He created anything. He's going to bring this thing to perfection and to completion. Okay, in love, verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the be- beloved, which is another way to say in Christ, right? The beloved is Christ, the beloved son of the, of the father. In verse 7, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Okay, so verses 5 and 7, two things are mentioned. Our redemption, verse uh, 7, and our sonship, verse Five. We'll talk about our redemption. That term is a is a market term. It's a market term for us. Like redeem, the the only time I can think of us really using that in any normal you know normal way would be like redeeming a gift card or redeeming a coupon, right? Well, redemption is a marketplace term, and it refers to God. Well. Primarily it would refer to a slave owner relationship. In the ancient world, in in this world that Paul is speaking to, a third of the population were were enslaved. And redemption meant that you were bought from someone or some servitude that you had. It may have been bought to the service of another, maybe your freedom was acquired but you were somehow bought. And you had to be that way. You had no freedom, no power, no ability to do anything apart from something outside of you coming in and purchasing you. And God says that's what, that's what Christ has done to us, that we have been redeemed. And what was the cost of that redemption? It was nothing short of, of God's own son, right? His blood, his, his very life was put forward so that we could be bought and freed from our entanglement and mess and sin. Um, which is wonderful news. And look at the end for which it happened. Um, Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Again, grace precedes the whole thing, right? Grace. You know, one of the things, it, it, oh, and I've totally forgotten. This is a great segue to this, but I meant to do it at the beginning of the service. I have a sheet of paper. Actually, I should explain it first, and then I'll tell you the sheet. It's more, more effective that way, I think. <laughs> um, so, so here, here's elsewhere in the New Testament. The fact that Christ gave, put forth his whole life to buy the church is used as, as a motivation for our own labor in the church. Like if the God of the universe was willing to put forward his own son to purchase this thing called the church, then you too, as Christ's people, should be, should be willing to put forth your labor and your energy to serve the church, to serve body. Like that's how important it is. That's how central it is to the whole universe. Um, And so, with that, (laughs) um, I've got this little sign-up sheet thing that I wanted to pass around. If you're already getting emails, I don't need your email, um, don't need your phone number, because I already have that information. But what I do want to, to learn from you is, every time we meet, there's a lot of people doing a lot of different things to make this happen, for which I'm very grateful. But I know that there's more of you out there that have gifts and talents and interests where you can kind of plug in and help get on a rotation so that we're all kind of sharing the load. So I've got like weekly things that we do that we have need for, which include like children's ministry, youth ministry, um, greeters, cleanup crew, people to just spend time in that room beforehand praying for what we're doing here, Um, sound booth and slides, all of those things. So if you're interested in any of those things, just put your name and put your uh, area of interest. There's monthly things as well, like finances. If you have a finance background or a legal background, social media, graphic design, meal planning. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we're, we're gonna we're gonna be doing, and we need people to help us. So you know, write your name. Uh, put your. Uh, let's let this circulate. We'll start it over here. I'll spare you, Doug. Uh, we'll start it over here, and then let it float and make sure you you have opportunity to sign it if you're just checking things out you don't have to sign up I'm not trying to pressure anybody into any of this but I I would like you to um, consider it if if you're a part of what we're doing here okay so that's redemption but he begins even earlier with adoption that precedes it in love verse 5 he predestined us for adoption as sons Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And this, I think, is the maybe the pinnacle of our salvation that God would would take us and not just redeem us, right? So we're enslaved in sin and he buys us back. But he goes even a step further because he, uh, he adopts us, right? A person that's bought in, let's say, the slave market, that could be good or bad, but it would be a whole other step for for the person that bought the slave to also say, you are going to be my adopted son. And not only that, but you are going to be my adopted firstborn in whom all of my inheritance is going. Everything that I have and that is mine will be yours. Listen to what J.I. Packer says about adoption, our sonship. He says, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption, that God would adopt us. God is referenced as, as Father like 6 to 12 times in the Old Testament. Like not that much at all. And then what does Jesus tell us when he t- teaches us how to pray? How, how do we address God? Our Father. Which actually is a little too formal. The, the word is actually Abba, which is more like Daddy or Dad. Like intimate, relational, first-hand experience of God as Father. That's how he wants us to relate to God, which was a surprise. Nobody saw it coming. That that's how God would, would treat his people. And you may think, well, that doesn't seem very fair that he would call us sons. Is this just an old, you know, antiquated, old people, misogynist? They don't get male, female. There's no daughters. It's all about sonship. And the answer is Paul is actually making a very radical claim in saying in calling uh, both male and female sons of God because only sons were rightful heirs of the Father. So for him to call male and female sons is to say, in Christ, regardless of race, regardless of gender, you are full heirs of the Father. And it's, it's actually a radical claim that he makes. And look, it's to the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace that, that it's to His glory, right? It begins with Him before the foundation of the earth, and it ends with Him for His glory. As, as the Westminster Confession says, what's the chief end of humanity? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's what Paul is saying here. Okay, verse 8. So the redemption and even the sonship found its uh, source in the riches of His grace, that's verse 7, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Um, you think of the word lavish and it's just like extravagant, showering of blessings. There's, a, there's an author, Indy Wilson, who's written a book called Notes from a Tilted world and he, he has a really good section on snow. Basically what he's doing is he's taking just sort of everyday things in creation and he's, he's just reflecting on them. And this is really good. Listen to what he says about snow. And he's he's living in Idaho at the time, so it's like a winter storm is taking place, and he says this. Snow is so overused. One sentimental, overly structured ice flake might have some value, but God never seems capable of moderation or of understanding the basic concept behind supply and demand. He constantly devalues his own products. Give me one flake, a cool room, and a magnifying glass, and I will admire its artistry. But right now, I'm sitting by my window on a Christmas night, staring out at winter wastefulness in the extreme. Miles of clouds, clouds larger than states, have turned into crystal stars and now streak silently past my window to their deaths. Well, not quite silently. The stars that are falling, the little snowflakes, fast enough that if you step outside, like I just did, you can hear the whisper of collision and delicate frozen impacts, each six-pointed perfection complaining as it arrives. Try counting the flakes. Really count them. I'll step back outside for a quick estimate. Let's be conservative. Assuming that we're in the middle of this storm and it only stretches 10 miles in each direction... And assuming that the storm is a tiny 100 feet tall, and skipping the pre-existing ground accumulation, and eyeball estimating the frenzied blizzard's air content at a meager 10 flakes per cubic foot, then we are looking at about 11 trillion 151,300 or 151 billion 360 million flakes in the air above a small patch in Idaho at one particular moment on Christmas night at the end of the year 2007. Just this storm, this tiny little slice of winter, could divvy out 1,700 flakes to every person on this planet. Okay? That same God, who is lavish in his snowflakes, Paul says, has lavished us with his, all of his benefits and mercy and love and blessings. And, and here, here's another thing. It says, look... Uh, lavished upon us, and then look at this, in all, this is verse 8, in all wisdom and insight. This is kind of a confusing uh, coupling of, of ideas, right? Lavish with all wisdom and insight. You know, I think of lavish as somebody that's sort of like kind of almost sloppy in how they're doling blessings out. And then wisdom and insight is being precise and particular, Paul is saying that, that God has the wisdom of a master engineer, and he has carefully architected or engineered this incredible plan of salvation from before the dawn of time, before the foundation of the earth. Okay, so it has all of that careful design, and it's been lavished out like a grandparent that just wants to. Pour blessings sloppily upon their grandchildren, with like no regard for just just pouring it out, right? Those two—that's what Paul is saying—that those two things are combined in God's act of salvation towards us. We got to keep moving. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mystery, verse nine. Uh, what is what is Paul saying? Oh, oh, and so in in this. He's made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. And what is the mystery of His will? Okay, apart from God revealing anything to us, we are totally lost on what it means to be saved, on really even who God is and what He's like. Um, All of those things are very much lost on us apart from God. I mean, think about this. The only world religions that have a, a God that's anything like the Christian God are the three Abrahamic faiths. Because they're all rooted in that initial revelation of God to Abraham and to Moses. So the idea of a God, like we don't, we don't get it apart from his revelation to us. And so Paul says God has also made this mystery known. And this mystery that he's referring to here is that God is taking everything in the universe and and he's tethering it up to Christ, who will rule and reign over it all. And that work, that, that work of unification of all the world begins with the church, where Paul is going to say in a moment, and in a couple chapters, where God is uniting Jew and Gentile and breaking down the wall of hostility that exists between these two, two people. Okay, But that's kind of the end. That's the goal of all this, is the unification of everything under Jesus. Things in heaven, things on earth. Okay, verse 11. I'm going to kind of speed things up a bit here. Uh, Verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of Of His will. Again, this thing has been carefully architected, according to the counsel of omnipotent and omniscient God Almighty. So it's it's we can trust it. It's well well planned, and uh, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, and there Paul is referring to Jews. He's referring to his Jewish audience in Ephesus because they were the first to hope in Christ, because they were given the promises of God, might be to the praise of his glory. So now we can glorify God, which is our purpose in life. And then he says to the Gentiles in the house, in him you also, verse, 10, or verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it again, to the praise of His glorious, to the praise of His glory. Okay, listen. Well, there's a lot there, obviously, um, but what what I want you to see, grace, then peace, i.e., the unification, the unification of all things, in Christ. That's the piece that all this is moving towards. Uh, and it's powerful because it's been well architect, architected and it's just, it's relying upon God's generosity and love. That's what He wants to do, is pour that out to a people, which is incredible, incredible news. Um, and here's the thing in, in our own culture, we think that, man, I want to avoid. Um, God, because God confines and he constricts, he constrains my life. Okay, like the, the, a lot of the atheists of the early 20th century, late 19th century, Aldous Huxley, for example, he, he, he was honest. He said, I, want, I am an atheist because I want to sleep with the women that I want to sleep with and I don't like God telling me what to do. That was the reason why he elected to be an atheist. He wanted, he wanted so-called freedom. But what Paul is saying is, look at the wide open horizons that this kind of thing gives you. What Christ has done for you. It opens up everything. I'm going to read one quote and then we will, we will break up into groups. This is what Eugene Peterson says about this passage in that book that I referenced. He says, the Ephesians letter gives us room, dimensions deep and wide. Ephesians plunges us into ocean deeps. And we come up gasping for air. This is going to take some getting used to, he says. And it is. Um, and it is. The thing that makes that seems to make us free actually like crushes us and flattens us. It makes us so nearsighted we can't even see the people next to us in our own homes even. By contrast, the thing that maybe seems confining, it, it opens things up and its horizon's That we have to, we can barely even handle it's so wide and deep. Okay, let me pray for us, and then we'll break up into groups. But let's 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 pray before we uh, break up for about fifteen minutes. Let's pray together. Father, you are not an accoutrement that we sort of tack on to our otherwise busy lives, but you are the the beginning and the end for which we are um, our lives find their source in you our redemption and salvation finds its source in you and uh, and our our end is you to the praise of your glory help us to, to live that way help us to frame our lives as Paul here has framed it frame them in the book of Ephesians we confess that we 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 often forget that, we rebel against that, we kick and scream our way into that, and we ask for your transformation upon our hearts so that we love it for for what it is. We ask that you would bless this time as we break up into smaller groups and discuss this passage. We pray for your help in that as well, and we ask these things in Christ's name, amen.